Hi, my name's Ollie Ollerton. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at oh, all? Yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Ollie Ollerton. Uh, Jesus Christ, you want... I don't know if I can do brief, but I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I, my name's Ollie Ollerton, as, as stated. I'm a former UK Special Forces soldier. People will recognise me if they saw a picture of me um, from SAS Two Days Wins. Am um, I uh, recently a best-selling author and um, uh, entrepreneur? So I have a few businesses as well. As per usual, I'm joined by Ant and Ryan, the two chaps, the two guys, fellas. How are we? Ryan, hello, mate. Hiya, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you? Don't remember asking you, I are you here? I give you the same, same answer every week. For one week, I should mix it up, but then you, you ask it and it gets to that point and I never know what to say. <laughs> Other than, good, thanks, how are you? So, uh, yeah, but I'm in, in grand scheme of things, I'm well. Thank good, you. mate. How is the house coming along? Slow but steady. We're getting we're getting stuff done. It, it just I'm because I'm at home working and I want to be there and I have to make decisions and I'm a very indecisive person. I mean the half is very indecisive, like picking the smallest thing just snowballs into this <laughs> monumental effort. But it, it is getting there. Luckily, me and my dad's handy with the tools, so he's there on a daily basis getting it to where it needs to be. Fantastic. And Ant, how are you, mate? I'm good, yeah. I'm doing all right. Um, do you want to um, do you want to just regale the listeners and also um, Ryan with the story you just told me about your dad's trip to B and Q and his conversation with your uh, older brother Robert? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Rob's, you know, got received a text from my dad, and my dad said, "Do you need anything from B and Q?" My brother's text back and said, "Yeah, I need a shovel." Um, so my dad, you know, plods off to B and Q. Um, he got me some soil as well. I bought a lemon tree the other day, um, which will feature <laughs> heavily throughout the summer. Are you um, um, are you planning on opening some kind of like airsats fruit and veg store <laughs> in Bakehead Market when it opens again? If it makes me money, then yes. And and was it was it compost or yes. was it soil? Soil or compost, one of the two. I don't know what they are. I don't know the difference to be honest. Um, Anyway, so he comes back to my brother. He knocks on the door and says, "Oh, yeah, there's your shovel." And my brother's like, well, "Why have you bought? He's bought like a proper digging shovel. Why yeah. have you done that? Why have you bought that? Because because you asked for a shovel." And my brother's there, and I went, "No, I met a dustpan and shovel." I've, like, my dad's just looking. I'm going, "Well, why didn't you ask for that? Why didn't you just ask for a dustpan and no. shovel? You've texted me saying I need a shovel." Isn't it a dustpan and brush? Yeah, yeah that's what I, I thought. So. <laughs> Because a dust pan the... and shovel. And... Uh... What are you brushing it up with? <laughs> the shovel. <laughs> I don't know. It's just had an absolute nightmare. 
And his, his missus has come out and said, what did you ask when he goes, I needed a shovel. She goes, well, you've got one now, haven't you? And, he's, <laughs> and, he's, and, it, and, and, and it's cost you that £22, of which yeah. Rob, Rob is not happy reimbursing. Big big nail for is he? No, no, big nail's gone out and spent. Uh, to be honest, I reckon there's probably a lot of big nails part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm team Neil here. I think yeah, uh, I am as well. And I think Rob should take the receipt back and get the money back yeah. and get himself a proper dustpan and brush for about two pounds from Wilco's. Yeah, I don't know why he thought being is the way to go for, for <laughs> general household items. Crikey! Yeah. So let's uh, let let let's move on from that travesty. We'll, uh, we'll brush that aside. Well done, mate. Very Thanks. good. Very good. Um. So let's 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 move on with the episode. We've got Ollie Ollerton on today. So we've got an opening question and chat. Ollie Ollerton obviously was in uh, in the SAS, and we've we've seen him on the Channel Four show SAS Who Dares Wins. So what I want to know from you two, and Anton, I'm going to come to you first. Which footballer would be best suited to appearing on SAS Who Dares Wins? And conversely, who would be the worst? Oh. So. I think the best one um, would be Ben Mee for Burnley. Um, I think he's asked to do a lot of uh, a lot of tough things at Burnley. Yeah, um, and he's you know come through them with flying colours. He's just yeah. in the trenches every game, isn't he? Heading yeah. things, getting things, getting them going. Even when he goes to Man City and get beat five 0 every game, comes back the next week, gets over it, and they'll nick like a one 0 win at home. Have another game. Yeah, I think he's perfect mentality. And he also came out and did that really good interview or like post-match interview after the farce in the summer with the plane and stuff. So oh, I think yeah. That's really good. Um, so that's the one I go for for the best. I mean, the worst. It's difficult. You probably... Probably... John Joe, shall we? wouldn't have to do well, would he? <laughs> Why? What's up with John Joe? Uh, I just wouldn't do that well. You know, out in the sun all day, possibly. <laughs> That'd be difficult for him. <laughs> a lot of sunscreen on that head, isn't it? Yeah, he's not had a great time of it. He seems to struggle a little bit. He likes it when it's all in front of him and it's easy. But when it's, you know, gets going, yeah, not for me. Not for me. I think he'd struggle. I think he'd Fair struggle. Enough. Ryan, same question to you. Who'd be best? Who'd be worst? Yeah, I, w- I was trying to think of, like, a hard man sort of route to go down, but I've, I've thought about it and I think I'm going to go in Golo Kante because I feel oh, like yeah. he doesn't complain. He's ridiculously fit. He's always smiling. I feel like they'd wake him up at three in the morning and be like, go and do your runs and everyone be moaning. He'd just be straight out the door. Yeah. And they just, I don't think they could break him. I feel like he just, he just rise to every challenge. So I'll go with Angolo Kante. Um, and then for the worst, I think I'll go with James Rodriguez. He'd come out of his barracks. He'd, he'd, he'd probably nail the rifle shooting bullseye at it every time and then drop and give me 50 and he would just be moaning and he, he wouldn't do it. He's, he was he was there for the, the the flashy elements of it. I don't think he's there for the hard work. So, But he, he is good at what he does if ever any ever times are listening. <laughs> he's a You've very already had one nightmare to... on Twitter slating Hammers Rodriguez at the beginning. I've never even slated him either. But they, um, <laughs> he'd be talented at all the technical drills but wouldn't want to get down and dirty like Ben Me. He don't think he'd like his hair being put out of place. He's got exactly, he has very yeah. specific hair routine. How far are we gonna go on the uh, the foreigner doesn't like hardware? Yeah, that was just I was just worrying <laughs> how 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 far over that side. 
<laughs> but we had N'Golo Kante, not, exactly, not of this yeah. land. Uh, that's so. true, yeah. Fair enough. And we sliped yeah. on Joe Shelby off because he's yeah, lazy. Exactly. Yeah. Doesn't wear yeah. sunscreen. Well, he probably does. He probably has to wear a lot of it. And then that's, that's the problem. <laughs> I don't know how big Channel 4's budget for sun cream is, but whether or not they have enough to cover John Joe's head is, is another matter. Is there any footballers who don't like water that we're aware of? Because that tends to be a big thing in this SAS Who Dares wins. How would we know if any footballers didn't like water? You know, you, you, like, are we going to social or isn't he allergic to grass? There's just these random things that come out. You know, about All right, players. hang on, hang on, hang on. What? Where have we got that you, from? He just said Solskjaer's allergic to grass. I thought that was a thing during his career. He was allergic to grass. That can't be right. You want Maybe I need to Google. I anyway, the, I went for Jack Grealish for the best. Just... Oh, of course you did. Well, <laughs> no. Well, there was part you of it. You waited there for our reaction. I know, I did. <laughs> it wasn't what I expected. Well, what I was, I was Googling Solskjaer and grass. He is, Jack Grealish is comfortably the most fouled player in the Premier League. So he's often getting knocked down and then he has to get back up again. And that is a very big part of the old SAS who dares wins, isn't it? They're constantly getting knocked down. And, and also, look at his look at his carbs. If that isn't a man who's, who's up for a challenge, I, I have not seen one. Um, and the worst, uh, I went for Hatton Ben Arthur. Just, just with point blank refused to do it. Yeah, that's fair enough. They'd be, just... like, they'd be like, go and do this thing or you're out. And he'd be like, okay, I'll just go then. And he just yeah, get he's off got, and else. he's got form for that, hasn't he? Yeah. Apparently, Solskjaer is related to grass. Yeah. But how? In what? But how did he play on? How did he play football? I think he took something for it. It probably was more like not like your throat's going to close up and die, but you get a rash. I imagine right. it was more like a. He's not suffering from anaphylaxis or anything. He's I just... reckon he just used a few antihistamines and cracked on. His dad was also a Norwegian wrestler. Are you got any more Solskjaer facts or? That, that the They're the two I own, and I don't even own them. I don't know if you can own a fact about someone else, but I know them. Yeah, I definitely, you definitely can't. Okay. Particularly when you've just read them <laughs> off the internet. <laughs> Grealish, Grealish isn't, isn't, nah. He's not even winning that series, let alone being. Mate, he'd be superb. But he, he takes a lot of hits, I'll give him that. He gets just whacked all over but again. He, he, he knows how to go down as well. Yeah, but that's, that's, half, the, that's half the battle. You know what I mean? Grealish is the man. He'd win it. Didn't uh, Wayne Bridge win it one year? Oh. He did, yeah. Yeah, he did. Well, we'll get to that bridge when we we'll cross that bridge when we got mess that up. Let's move on. Brian, do you want to tell the listeners why we wanted to speak to, to Ollie and how this interview came about? Quite a funny story, really. So I uh, speculatively emailed somebody to try and get an interview with Tyson Fury, which we had a good giggle at for a couple of days before a lovely lady reached out to us and said, I don't actually represent Tyson Fury, so I can't help you there. <laughs> but I do represent uh, Ollie Orton, and it would be probably right up his street. And we went from laughing to suddenly thinking, wow, this is brilliant. This opportunity's arose uh, out of nowhere. So you don't actually don't get it. It's a story there. That was up but, there with when you dm Trent Alexander-Arnold. Yeah, to retweet a show. Um, if you're listening, Trent, <laughs> check your DMs. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a load of people messaging you, but uh, just scroll Top through. Saving man chat. At Man Market, even though that's the wrong hashtag. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyone who's not aware of Ollie's background, you, you'll hear about it in the interview, but he sort of came to fame in the SAS Who Dares Wins show. Um, talks a lot about mentality, resilience, overcoming obstacles, depression. 
his personal story away from television. Um, and it was a bit of a match made in heaven, really, and, and talking about those topics from somebody who's obviously got uh, learned experience with them, uh, gone through them, but has now also got a business, I think, called Breakpoint, which discusses how you can you can cope with some of those issues. So, yeah, brilliant guest to us. Happened by chance, but we're really grateful that he agreed to come on. Fantastic. It was. It was a really good evening. It was a. Uh, it was you and I who did that one. And you'll notice, listeners, when you're listening to this interview, that Ryan does a lot of the heavy lifting in this interview because I could not get my microphone to work, except for asking one question where it seemed to work and then didn't work <laughs> again after that. I just I spent like the entire interview panicking because I couldn't get it to work. And Ryan manfully. I mean, I should have made you my person for SAS Who Days Wins, Ryan, after the way that you manfully came through Stop and delivered that interview for us. Stop it. I was so, listening back recently thinking, why didn't Danny speak? He was definitely there and then you've just reminded me. Yeah. And then I managed to get it working again by the quick fire. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of the way, that was my evening. I had two computers in front of me, two different headsets. I was unplugging things, plugging them back in. I was in audio settings. I was doing all kinds. And I think what had happened in the end is I'd pressed the button by accident on the microphone itself and turned it off. Oh, you couldn't get to work for weeks after that, could you? And then you said you fixed it, and then honestly, the bit where you broke it. But I just don't want to. I just don't want to think about it anymore because it it was just a really stressful time in my life, and I'm, I'm you know I'm trying to think positively now. But there we are. Uh, and we have a theme for every episode. Would you like to tell the listeners what this episode's theme is, please, mate? Yeah, so we came up with uh, it's okay for me not to be okay, but I have to do something about it. I think that's kind of it's kind of a good thing because you get into the you'll hear it pretty quickly. A lot of the a lot of the stuff is kind of problem solving when you're in these situations, and then narrowing it down to its smallest, easiest points is is, is one of the the ways they you know people in the army and, and the forces deal with things. So you know you can kind of apply these things to, to everyday life, um, which is fantastic. And, and I think when you narrow it down, it makes it a lot easier. You know, yep. if you just take it step by step rather than rushing to the end and thinking, oh, there's 20 steps in a day rather than, oh, there's just one for now and then there's another one. So I think it's a really good, um, really good theme. Um, and it's actually a really good interview. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to leave you now with, with Ollie's interview and we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. What sort of made you agree to do an interview with Man Marking? Yeah, I feel it's really important for me. And, uh, uh, you know, with the, with the exposure that I've got, you know, I don't uh, look at that exposure as a tool for stroking my ego. I, I, I think I've got a duty um, at the end of the day. I think we all have got a duty to be an inspiration and motivation for, for everyone out there. So, you know, the more I can get my word out uh, using podcasts and, and all kinds of mediums uh, on social media and what have you, then um, I'm all up for it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to come on board and speak to your audience as well. So it's a different audience than, um, than you know, every, every podcast had its, has its own specific audience. And, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Fantastic. Yeah, and we're really happy to have you on. We, we, we discuss a lot about mental health, a lot about mentality, and a lot also about just men in general and, and how we behave, how we communicate. And we feel you've got a great insight to that. Just yeah. as a, a starting point, um, you, you've described the SAS training, which are, you're very famous for the show, um, as the hardest military training in the world, as you have to be fit, you have to be strong, both physically and emotionally. 
what encouraged you to apply for the SAS in the first instance? Uh, that's a, that's a quite a uh, an in-depth uh, or complex topic, really, because um, it all started for me when I was 14 years old. You know, I grew up, I got in a lot of trouble with the police um, at, one, at, at one stage in my life when I was about 13 years old. Um, and it was around that point that my, you know, my father had just left. Um, everything was falling apart, really, for my mom. And she really, um, at that point, could see that I needed um, my energy to be focused in, in a positive way. Um, so she really encouraged me to get into my sport and everything. It was around that, about a year later after getting in, in trouble, that I had this, this desire to join the Royal Marines. I wanted to be in the hardest military unit. I'd heard a lot about the Royal Marines and, um, and that was it for me at 14 years old. That was, you know, I wanted to join the military. I'd also been, um, you know, I was brought up with, it's quite a interesting topic. I mean, a lot of people might know this story, but it was a really um, life-changing experience for me. At 10 years old, I was attacked by a chimpanzee at the circus in Burton-on-Trent in Staffordshire, and it nearly uh, it nearly killed me. It um, you know it had a good good go at ripping me apart, and um, it was a life-changing experience for me. And that really did sort of um, change me in a in in a lot of negative ways, but some in, in a lot of positive ways as well. Um, and I really had this, uh, this desire to be, to be at war constantly, which was, was not healthy. And, and definitely, you know, my view has changed on that now, but you know, for me, I, I, that in that same year, which is quite uncanny is, um, it was the year, it was 1980. And that was the year that the, uh, SAS stormed the Iranian embassy in London, which was covered all across the, the media. And that for me just, you know, that, that sowed a seed even at 10 years old. Um, yeah, it's, and it was strange. It was, you know, quite a, quite a monumental year for me as well. So when I joined the Royal Marines in, in, when I was 18, I managed to, to join the Royal Marines, passed the training 32 weeks. And then, um, you know, I had this, it just, it just wasn't enough for me. Um, you know, and I, I went to Northern Ireland. That was my first tour. Then I went to Iraq, Operation Desert Storm. That was my sort of second tour. And, um, you know, I came back from there and I just wanted to be at war every day. Uh, or that's what I thought I wanted. Um, but I just knew that in the, in the Marines, something was missing. There was something, something didn't complete. You know, my perception of what it would be was very different to the reality. Um, so that's why I put in for, you know, I was either going to go outside to be a civilian or I was going to give it one last stab and, and, and go for special forces selection. You know, I, I didn't have much confidence. I was still a little scrawny lad, 23 years old, um, but I was prepared to give it a go. And, um, you know, I was, I was encouraged by a former officer of mine from, um, from Iraq that I served with down in Northern Ireland. And uh, he's the one that gave me the confidence really to take the first step. And, you know, it was, I'm so glad he did because, um, you know, I was after after a bit of a long journey, I managed to get in the special forces. I was one of one of five out of 300, 350 that passed the course after six months, and um, still a very young lad. So it was a, it was a desire from a young age, and something that you know I just had to do it. I had to do it. I had to be part of my life. I had to complete it. Um, but I have to say, you know, I. I I thought after doing that, you know, Royal Marines, if I ever got in the special forces, God, that's got to be every boy's dream. And, um, you know, I, was, I thought getting in that, I would, that would be me for the rest of my life. I'd be content. But even when I got there, you know, there was, there was still something missing. Something wasn't right. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I really couldn't. Um, 
so anyway that leads on to another story really so i'll, I'll sort of stop there because that that leads on you know i i, I actually put my notice in i actually left the special forces in 2000 that's um, an incredible journey you've been on, Ollie. And even just going back to the story of the chimpanzee, which I wasn't aware of, um, it seems like you must have had really strong resilience and you have a natural fight over flight when in those situations. To Obviously, with your dad leaving at 14 as well, a lot of young lads might have gone into the shell, but it seemed like you sort of almost came out of yours and was ready to, to grow up and, and get your sort of teeth into something. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And it was, you know, it was, for me, it was, I was forced into that as a 10 year old lad. And, you know, usually you don't get that. You sort of, you grow into it more gradually, but, you know, I was sat underneath that chimp and, um, you know, I could see my life passing, uh, uh, you know, in front of my eyes. And, um, it was in that moment, you know, if I had have sort of frozen, then I wouldn't be here today. But, you know, it's, it, I had to take the fight to the chimp that day. And, um, you know, at 10, that's, that's a pretty, uh, pretty big call, pretty courageous. And that really, for me, I mean, I've got my first book was called Breakpoint and um, my company's called Breakpoint. Um, and that was my first breakpoint. You know, when I was sat under the chimp and I could have laid there and I could have been, I could have done nothing and basically been killed. Um, but you know, I knew if I had any chance of survival that day, I had to up my game, but I knew by doing so that would really anger the chimp and, and, and up its game. But that's how I see, that's really been an, an analogy for, for everything my company's about and the book is all about and the ethos is about that you can't achieve anything in life unless you take the short-term discomfort, which leads to long-term gain. Short-term discomfort that day for me was taking the fight to the chimp. The long-term gain was, was living. And in terms of um, then going on to, to do your marine training and the SAS training, obviously you, you, you touched on the, the processes you went through, but how did you adapt to it? How did you take to it? Was it something you were quite naturally good at or was it something you just had a huge resilience towards and you were always going to do it at some point if you if you carried on did you a lot of people talk about being broken by by the marines or the sas training and did you sort of pass that with flying colors or did it have its challenges along the way the i tell you what the hardest part about sas selection for me was was the anticipation of failure before i even started and that's you know a lot of people fail on that you know they tell themselves they don't believe in themselves and they tell themselves that they go through such a mental battle that they fail themselves before they even start. And that was a battle for me as well. You know, I was in, I was, when I looked at myself, I was scrawny. I was, you know, I was still a kid. Um, and really, I was prepared to just, you know, the thing is with me, I mean, I've always done this, what I have done naturally. I, I never, you know, it's, it's not a case of it being easy for me. And I took it in my stride. Um, there's two things here, actually. First of all, I found the transition from being a civilian to getting into the military, into the Royal Marines harder than I did going from the Royal Marines to the special, uh, to the special. Um, Cause it's, you know, joining the, going from a, a civilian, going from a young lad, 18 years old into the military is a shock to the system like you wouldn't believe. But you know, by the time, by, by the time you come to special forces training, you've got to have done one year, um, uh, 18 months, uh, service have done one operational tour before you can even go for special forces selection but really for me it was um you know it, it was taking it step by step you know although i visualized the end goal and that's one, one thing i've always done i've visualized the end goal what it would mean to me 
I'm adding emotion to it like I'd already done it. I'd already passed it. And that was the anchor that pulled me through the hard times. But basically, when it, when it does get tough, and one thing that special, you know, anyone in the military is quite good at, but special forces are really good at, is when things get tough, the whole world is falling, in, falling down around you. You have to bring everything into one meter square and just focus on your, your immediate environment. And once you can learn to do that, you manage to cut away all the, um, all the distractions and really just focus on yourself. So for me, it was a case of, I was so passionate about what it would mean to me if I completed that course that I didn't, you know, once I passed the first test, that was it, that was it for me. Once I got actually into the course and stopped thinking about it, um, and I actually, you know, the, the first day you go to the Brecon Beacons, the first day you're running up a mountain, uh, you have to do 24 Ks in four hours um, with full weight across an upper mountain, down a mountain, up a mountain and back down. And um, that once I'd done that and I realized, I, uh, you know, I realized I was in the front run. I was one of the front runners that gave me so much confidence. You won't believe. And from that moment on, you know, after that first march, I realized I did have what it takes. It gave me that confidence. It gave me that milestone of growth. And um, it, I believed in myself. And from that, that linked with the passion and the desire and the visualization of the outcome pulled me through anything. And you talked there about visualization and sort of almost coping mechanisms to get through, through difficult times. Did you have anybody who was a role model to you or who you would lean on? at any time or did you keep everything very insular and it was all you, just yourself in your mind? No, it's just myself in my mind. And, um, you know, it's, I, I, you know, I, I didn't really have a mentor. You know, the only person I did is my, the ex, my ex-officer from, from Northern Ireland and Iraq. He's the one that, you know, I had the words echo in my head because I actually saw him just before I was making that, I had that sliding doors moment of go for special forces or leave and be a civilian. Um, you know, I saw him, I told him I was leaving and he was like, Look, if you leave, you have got you've got it. You've got what it takes to pass the special forces selection. I, I do believe that. And he says, if you leave, because I know you wanted to do it, he says, if you leave, you will regret that for the rest of your life. So those words, although he wasn't a uh, you know a, a mentor all the way through the process, it was those words that really pushed me and pushed me and kept me going. So it was, it was that you know that constant in my head. But really, I, I've always had a desire. You know, I will always follow things through. And really, what I used a lot of in that. And I've always used it. People, people um, fall foul of this, but I had a lot of people doubting me. Yeah, you know, I had, a, I had people. I've had people doubting me from the start. You know, and actually, people laughing at me that I'd even go for special forces selection. And when I have something like that, I will do everything in my power to prove them wrong. You know, even now to this day, you know, I even, you know, when I come up with an idea, I'm always almost gagging for someone to say to me, "You can't do that," because I'm like a red flag to a ball. Um, and, um, but it was really, it was me and my motivation and my mindset. I, I do feel I've got a natural ability to really visualize the outcome that I want. And I really focus on that visualization of where I'm aiming to be and not where I am, because I feel a lot of people get bogged down because people don't have a visualization. They don't have a goal pulling them through when they come against any kind of problems, they become a victim of the circumstances and they get bogged down in that and they can't move forward. And that's when you've got, when you've got a desire, a goal, you've planted a line in the sand, you've put a date on it, you've added emotion to that outcome, everything that can pull you through anything. And that's really relevant at the moment. You know, the current situation we're in at the moment, a lot of people anxious about their jobs, anxious about 
what's happening. Um, and there's a lot of it going around, obviously. Um, you know, it's really, really important that you try and separate, you know, push that away and still visualize where you want to be in the future and not focus and get bogged down with where you are right now because you will become a victim of your circumstances and you won't be able to move away from it. Yeah, I think it's really good advice, Ollie. I think a lot of people, it's like a self-fulfilled prophecy. They're very good at visualization when it's something negative, but they struggle with visualization for something positive. Um, I don't know if it's like a defense mechanism of the brain where some people just assume the worst, but it's about flipping that that's, mentality, that's I suppose, yeah. isn't it? Sorry to put in there, but that's 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 a really important point because that is exactly what people do. We are so everyone can relate to that. You know, whenever there's anything a challenge in life, anything that's something new, something that you know is going to push you, we will very quickly look for everything that could go wrong. We won't look. You know, you have a honeymoon period when you think, "God, oh, that'd be good if I did that." Then, if you don't take action on those on that, those thoughts, before long, your mind will sabotage it. And your mind will enforce every reason not to do it. And before you know that, that you know, doubt, self-doubt pushes people, so many people away from their dreams uh, and kills more dreams than anything. But really, you've got to understand that that is the way that we're wired. You know, I've looked a lot into this. I've spent a lot of time studying. I've spent a lot of time analyzing myself and the troubles I went through mentally. And really, um, when you look at human, you know, our underlying drive yeah our dna our heartbeat regardless of whether you know it or don't know it our one drive is to uh is is evolution of the species it's the same with everything same with every animal everything it's evolution of the species so basically um i'm I, we are negatively wired everyone is negatively wired and that you you look right you you go back only fifteen thousand years ago we were being hunted and, uh, and hunting for food now we're still we're still living off that primal sort of dna that primal um uh heartbeat and that's why you know back back in those days you know you didn't look at positive things you looked to everything that could possibly kill you and we're still living on the, under that same primal undertone and, and people have got to understand that we are negatively geared and it is really hard to naturally just look at things in a positive manner and try uh, without having the negativity coming in and sabotaging everything you want to do that changes the norm it changes your habits changes the things that you do normally it will steer you away from anything that can um, possibly cause you mis uh, discomfort and stress it's just the way we're wired absolutely yeah it's that primal instinct isn't it i think yeah. it's something I, I myself i'm quite passionate about if you look at how humans probably live the same way for hundreds of thousands of years and then if you look at the fast-paced alien nature environment that we live in now yeah it's no surprise that the way we're wired doesn't actually match up with the lives we live and how that can become confusing for people or in some circumstances make them depressed or whatever it may be it's a tricky one really and i think sometimes we need to strip it back and not overcomplicate things for ourselves without putting you on the spot too much for somebody yeah. who does struggle with that turning the negative thoughts positive and maybe having a bit more resilience and trying to remain positive when when at times are difficult do you have any sort of strategies you used to use or anything that any advice that people can do yeah no i i, I enjoy being put on the spot especially when i can help people with this kind of stuff as well but and i've you know i um i've had to do this very process as well now you know really at the end of the day you've got to brainwash yourself 
And you've got to um, be able to start building your positive emotions. The only way you can do that is by coming, getting into a process. Now, I did exactly this. When I came back, I was, I was pretty broken. I came back from overseas. I'd been in, bouncing all over the world, war zones and all this kind of stuff, get myself into some proper scrapes. Um, and when I came back, I knew I needed to change what was going on in my head. And the only way you can do that is, is by brainwashing your, your subconscious. So I went into a process every day and I still do it to this day, you know, and this is the process that's actually detailed in my book, but already. Um, and it's a process in 2014, 15, when I came back and I, um, I, I actually put myself into self-isolation. I had a cottage that was part of one of my, you know, in the family and I was managed, I had a cottage on my own and I basically locked myself away for two months. I uh, didn't have any distractions and I started with the process of building positive, positive emotions, started looking at positive affirmations. Okay. So first of all, I mean, every time I, I still do it, I did it this morning. I get up in the morning, I have a positive affirmation straight away. And that basically, as soon as you're feeling doubtful, I mean, and all this stuff, everything I talk about today on this podcast, you can put this stuff into Google and it will give you a template of, of how you can do this stuff. Otherwise, and a better suggestion as well as if you can buy my book to do this, but really it's a slog, it's a, it's a, it's a long slog and it's a slow process. You have to constantly be enforcing yourself with a positive message. You know, like this morning I get up, I don't want to get out of bed, but I just said to me, I'm so happy and grateful that every day I have the discipline to get out of bed and give myself the time I need to grow and be the best version of myself. And I say that every time I get out of bed, you know, and it's about creating messaging that is extremely positive. And every time you are feeling negative and the messages are coming in, it's also about understanding and appreciating your emotions because unless you get a grip on your emotions, it's almost like you, you know, you've got to learn to be an emotional observer. Otherwise, again, you'll be a victim of your emotions. I understand that why I get up, get up in the morning. I understand that I'm going to feel negative and I'm ready for it. You know what I mean? But if you're not ready for it, if you don't understand why it's happening, you think that you're cursed and you're, you're, some, you're kind of a victim and it's only you and you, you know, you're, you start questioning why I've got depression, why, why have I got lack of motivation? But everyone's got the same thing. Everyone has. But, you know, I know I always use this as, as, as like an analogy. And that is the fact that you look at a mechanic, he can't fix a car, he can't fix a motorbike, he can't fix anything unless he understands how it works. And if people started to at least understand how our minds work, how our bodies work and have a basic understanding of that, you'll appreciate that it's okay to have negative emotions. It's just standard. It's just the way it is. But at least you can understand, you can appreciate them. You don't just ignore them. When I'm feeling negative, I just know it's going to happen. Uh, but I have a positive affirmation or a positive story and I appreciate the negative feeling coming in, but I turn it around very quickly. Yeah. And it, it, these things snowball as well, don't they? So, I've I've had I've had friends before in the past who will be quite negative about certain scenarios in their life, and then when it does happen, they'll say, "I knew that was going to happen." But you're going to have negative moments in your life. But may that's, that's the language of the game. You know, yeah, exactly. I, I come I come across that every day. You know, even and, and I'm very strict about the people I have in my business uh, and the language that they use. And, and if, as soon as I hear that, I cut that off straight away. Because and I say to people, "You have got to change that language because that's a natural default again." You know, I think a lot of, a lot, I, I seem to find that a lot in military and especially in men. Oh, it would happen to me. Oh, it's just my luck. All that yeah. kind of messaging is so, that is, that is, that is 
um, absorbing it into your subconscious. And yeah. honestly, the more you enforce that, the more you say that stuff, you will absolutely get more of the same. It's fact. Yeah, the language is so important, isn't it? And that actually brings ties in nicely to the next point, which is this conflict between people misunderstanding mentality and mental health. So if I'd sort of take yourself, for example, who's been quite open in the past about some of the struggles you've had, but from the outside looking in, you've got a really, really strong mentality. And I think people don't realise you can have really good mentality but suffer at a moment in your life with poor or ill mental health. Do you sort yeah. of see how the two different elements coexist? Yeah, I do, because I just think it's natural to feel, you know, it, it swings and roundabouts. I mean, it's, it's the same as motivation. You know, it's, it's like you, you don't get a consistent flow of it. And really, listen, I understand that, that you know, it's, it's okay. You know, you know this messaging around it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. You know that. I Listen, I disagree with that. Because although I, it's okay, it's okay um, uh, to not be okay, okay, that's one thing. But it doesn't mean, you know, but you also have to be in the same moment of that. You have to understand that you have to do something about it. Otherwise, you're just accepting that you're going to be, you can have, you can be a depressed person for the rest of your life. You know, it's okay to not be okay, but you need to do something about it. Really, when you're feeling, you know, it's, I've got a strong mentality, but if I'm starting to, you know, there's times when I, I start to suffer with, with um, you know, uh, lack of motivation. There's time when I start to, to, to suffer with a little bit of depression. And that, for me, is a message from a mind to change. Something needs to change. And really, I, you know, I live with those both things. I've got a strong, robust mind, absolutely robust, and a very goal-driven um, focused mind but the thing is i understand also and i appreciate that that at times can wane and i can end up being quite depressed at times and that for me is when i know i've got to change and that's where i think people have got it uh, you know can get it wrong they they sit there and they're 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 in a, in a depressed state and they don't do anything to change their current circumstances you know it's simply a message from your mind that you have to change something in your life because where you're at the moment isn't isn't a good place so really, it's it's really understanding that um, you can, you can live, you know, the the two can coexist. But uh, and I think it's healthy healthy that they do coexist. Um, but it's it's really for me, it's a really powerful tool from 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 the mind to say, you know, I'm not happy with this situation. You need to do something about it. And every every time I feel depressed or anything like that, or you know, and if it continues, then I know something has to change. It's just a message. It's, it's you know, it's something needs to be done. And from your your own personal experience, so you you know, you're somebody with a strong mentality. You describe yourself as having a strong mentality and like a fierce competitive nature to to anything you do, whether it's in the forces or your career. When you've had bouts of depression, how has the correlation been with your mentality? Has it been one where you've seen your mentality has, has suffered or has it been, this is a challenge in my life that I'm going to overcome like all the other challenges I've overcome? Yeah, that's, it's a really good topic as well because, uh, and, and to be honest, you know, I came out of the military in the 2000 and then, you know, over a 10-year period, thereabouts, 10-year period, I my, my mental state really started to deteriorate. And, um, you know, I didn't, I, I made the situation worse with drugs, alcohol, all kinds of stuff, Valium, the whole lot. 
uh, steroids at one point and it was you know it's and over that 10 year period i really took a massive dive and it got to around about 2011 i just got back from southeast asia where we'd been conducting operations out there to rescue kids from uh, child prostitution and slavery and um I really hit a wall at that point, but it was that strong road. But although I was absolutely broken at that point, it was that strong mentality that made me understand that, yeah, it, it, it's okay to be not be okay. To, to, it's okay to not be okay, but I had to do something about it. And it was that strong mentality that managed to pull me out of where I was. You know, and really for me, you know, I came from a special forces soldier, the, the best, in, you know, the, the, the best of the best. And then all of a sudden I was this broken individual 10 years later that couldn't even understand how I'd ever managed to pass special forces selection or anything for that matter. And it was really that contrast between those two people that made me scratch my head, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, you guys are cut from a different, different cloth. They think we're born different for some reason. I think we, you know, these these gods that are carved in marble on another planet and brought to brought, brought to Earth, and it's not the case. We just we bleed and breathe just like everyone else, and that contrast between those people, you know, was two very different people. That made me understand that that you just you're not just born great and you do great things and that's it. You can fall down, and I fell down massively. But it was that it was that benchmark that I'd set when I was 23, 24, a passing special forces selection that really made me understand that I could change where I was in that current moment. I think that's hard for some people that haven't got that benchmark to make them, you know, to give them something to pull themselves out. It's a little bit harder, but people have got to understand that regardless of your situation, you can change it. And that lies within every individual. You know, it's not an external fix, prescription drugs, whatever it is, alcohol that's not the answer that's all external everything you need to do and everything you need all the resources everything are within and until you start looking within you'll never find the answers yeah that's really good advice Arlene it, it sort of ties in with what I wanted to speak to you about next which was that process of leaving the military and potentially losing yeah. what you felt was was your identity how did you deal with that at the time well with alcohol mate to be quite honest but you know mm -hmm. it was a massive transit it was a massive change you know when i was sat behind the wall in the special forces and I, I, I relate this to a lot of people i relate this to people at the moment as well you know I'm, you're sat behind the wall in the special forces everything's taken care of you've got money going in your bank account every month you you feel invincible you're like i'm I'm the top of my game you know when i when i leave here i'll be the top of the top of my game at everything i do and very quickly, you, you know, you leave and it's, it's like a, you go from like even on like a, you leave on a Monday, you come out on a Tuesday, for instance, and those two worlds are massively different. All of a sudden, you've lost your net, network of mates, which you, you take for granted or, you know, you've taken for granted over the years. Um, you have got no structure to your day. Um, and then very quickly, um, you know, it's not. Again, I talk about perception a lot because my perception of the, the Royal Marines was, was not what it was. Or my perception and reality was so far apart. And it was the same with the Special Forces. And then it was exactly the same when I left. And I thought, you know, it was always about the grass is always greener. I came outside and then all of a sudden it was like, holy shit, what, I've come, what have I come out to? And um, 
and then I started, you know, that's when I started really getting, you know, I, was, I, I threw up a smoke screen, you know, drinking whenever I had those confusing moments, you know, there's mental sort of, um, you know, a lot going on in my head that I, I just reached for the bottle every time. And um, I sort of struggled and fumbled through. I mean, I managed to do quite well, but I ended up back in a war zone, which I said I'd never do shortly, not too long after I left. You know, I wanted to come out, stay away from the military thing create my own you know start carving my own path do something different or not not do something that was you know the norm pre you know um sort of that everyone does leaving the special forces and go and be in co a contractor in a war zone and i ended up doing that very very thing um so i was pulled back into that world and then i spent six years out in a war zone in, in iraq which which really took me you know to, to different levels you know i had thoughts of suicide all kinds of stuff. It just was not a good place for me to be in. Like I said, I got wrapped up in steroids, wrapped up in alcohol, you know, drugs, everything. I was just on a, like a path, path of self abuse. And, um, you know, I went one day from the net from one day to the next, you know, drinking most days, you know, I, I used to do my job and it wasn't a case of, you know, you could tell I was, I was, I was drinking every day, but every time I had any chance, it would be, I'd reach for a drink, you know, it'd be, a, you know, it'd be an excuse to have a drink. So it was really, you know, a 10 year, a 10 year sort of path of absolute mayhem and destruction when I left. And then when I came back from Thailand, you know, Southeast Asia, um, after conducting those operations, my, like I say, my life fell apart. And it was at that point I started looking back over my life and I thought, it's just this, I'm, I'm caught in this repeat habit loop. I'm doing the same things. You know, I had these aspirations and dreams to start my own business and do this and do that. And they were great. And they go through that honeymoon period. And then before I know it, I was back to square one, you know, which was, you know, which I saw at that time was massively attributed to drinking too much, you know, and there's, uh, I think, you know, and it was at a point I just said to myself, you need to change. And it was, it, it was being totally honest with myself where I was, who I was, you know, um, uh, and and really sort of uh, founding a foundation to to move move away from, um, and you know it was, it was from that point I started the slow climb back out of this black hole, um, and managed to to really change my life, you know, and um, it's something that I'm really proud that I did because a lot of people get stuck in that. I call this as well, you know. I call there's a lot of people that you know they they talk about mental health and they're stuck in the, you know, their mental health is, is, is not good because they basically keep recirculating the problem. Two things happen, you know, that first of all, when anything traumatic happens to people, they make some people, a lot of people make a mistake. And that is they try to be the person they were before the trauma. And the problem is you are not that person anymore. You know what I mean? So it's about, not looking in the rear view mirror of who you were it's about facing forward and start to put a line in the sand of where you want to be and that's what i did in that moment you know it wasn't about what was behind me it was about who i wanted to be how i wanted to change my life and the process i put into play to do that to take those steps and it was a slow process it was really slow and at times you know i just wanted to turn back and go back to my comfort zone was which was you know the same thing as, as I'd always done, hit the bottle, you know, party, do this, that, and the other. But I just knew that if I followed that path and that process that I would get from A to Z, no matter how long it took. And what I find really interesting about that process, Ollie, is in one of your interviews, you linked, uh, likened it to 
sort of a sports star or footballer ending their career. And we've had a lot of footballers and, and even Olympians on the show who talk about that process of when they retire and they're no longer in the football. And I suppose what it highlights is this isn't just individual to sports stars. This is anybody who's used to structure in their life who suddenly finds themselves without that structure that they were so comfortable with and then finding something else that they can really get invested in. I can't imagine you're somebody who at any point in their life sits around and does nothing. I imagine that that's when you're at your most vulnerable. You need sort of a focused goal. How important is that structure to you? That structure is everything. And you hit the nail on the head because I, I am the kind of person, I've, you know, whenever I've had, um, you know, no clear direction and no purpose, that's when I've had problems. Um, and, you know, I, I need a plan. And, and really important for me as well. I mean, like you said, they hit nail, the nail on the head. You know, me and Foxy from, you know, is one of my best mates um, from the show. He's on the show as well, obviously, for those that know it. Um, you know, we've talked about that. You know, it's, it's so similar to Premier, Premier League football player, boxers, that kind of thing, you know, that come out and all of a sudden they've got nothing. And um, very quickly their life can spiral out of control. But, you know, having that process, it took me a long time to, to really establish that process. But a really important thing as well is finding your purpose. Now, for me, um, you know... I truly, you know, we're, we're put on this planet. We're born into this, into this world as amazing creative beings. Now, society has created a system. Um, very quickly, we're pushed into the education system. And then all of a sudden, we get to the end of that education system. And we've got different sort of slots that we can fit into. People have got to understand, though, that there might not be a slot for you. You know what I mean? And people, mm. you know, people are forced into do things that really doesn't suit their purpose whatsoever. You know, and then they sit in those, you know, those jobs or whatever. It's the same for me when I joined the Special Forces. That for me was like, oh, that must be the best thing for me. I must, you know, that will obviously tick everything. You know, it will, it will be my perfect job. I'll feel fulfilled, satisfied, everything. I'll be in there for all my life, you know, until, until I have to leave. And it wasn't. It wasn't the case, you know. And it was, the fact of the matter is, I didn't, I didn't understand it then, but I hadn't found my purpose. And it wasn't until I actually went away to, you know, I keep talking about that child rescue in Thailand. That was, that was really a, a game changer for me because that was the first time I did anything that really made me feel uh, or understand my true purpose in life. And that was, you know, I, I went out there. I mean, it, it was a self-funded operation. You know, I had a four-man team um, out, in Th out in Thailand, Asia. And, um, you know, it was, it was actually helping these young kids and I then understood the power of helping other people and how, how rewarding that was and how humbling it was. And that was the first time I went, wow, this is amazing. And I, hit, I stumbled across something that, that really changed my life. And that was, that was helping other people. And I feel that we all have that well within us. Um, you know, the, the power of helping others is phenomenal. And the reward it gives you is absolutely um, you know, incredible. Um, and in this day and age, we're losing that. You know, we, we're losing that because so many people are fighting. Everyone's fighting for the most Instagram followers, most social media followers. Um, you know, even in a close-knit team, whether that be a sports team or um, a team in a corporate organization, people are competing in the same team against each other. And that's causing lack of pro productivity um, and, um, and also a lot of mental health issues.
So really for me, it was like that purpose is so, that purpose and the process is something I now can't live without. But it's something I didn't find till I was 43 years old. And it, it, often with people who've got as much drive as yourself or have achieved similar things to yourself, half of the problem is nothing is ever enough. But it sounds like you found out what is enough for you and that is helping others. Do you think that's just a good message for people in general? Because we've had people on the show who've sort of they've done challenges such as they've climbed Mount Everest, for example, and once they've achieved that, which was a lifelong ambition, they're actually scared that I've achieved what I wanted to achieve, what's next? They don't like that. I haven't got a challenge in front of me. So do you think a healthy way to deal with that is to go into something that helps others? Yeah, well, I, I just think, look, I think it's quite a natural thing. You know, when you look at, again, evolution of the species, I think it's, I think it's within our, everyone's DNA um, that helping um, our fellow man, our fellow, you know, woman, whatever, anyone next to, to the left or the right of us, helping those people to do well in life is a natural and rewarding thing to do. Now, I think for me, I was that very person. Though I was bouncing around the world doing all this. I'm just trying to understand why I couldn't find anything that didn't make me feel fulfilled. And it wasn't until, you know, the military didn't do it for me. You know, at Southeast Asia, I stumbled across that. That really changed, changed my life. And then that really was the backbone of me coming back and, and then starting my company, Breakpoint. And Breakpoint, you know, we help people build their positive emotions we help people understand that limit you know limitations are something we self-create and we we push people outside their comfort zones to make them understand they can achieve anything they want to achieve so for me you know this job and what i'm doing now is you know it's for me you know the tv stuff is is, is good you know it's i'm very very honored to have been on sas who dares wins it's given it's done exactly what i wanted it to do but i do not really want to be a celebrity that's not my calling my calling is to run my business to help other people everything we do from corporate training to my books to the app that me and foxy have got everything is about seeing other people grow and that for me you know my mission statement is to create a globally identified brand recognized for the positive growth and development of others now that for me gets me out of bed every morning firing on all cylinders and i'm not just getting out of bed to pay the bills you know, and I think a lot of people are lacking that sense of drive. If they've got no drive and their only motivation for going to work is the fact they've got to pay the mortgage and the bills, that is going to lead to a pretty dull existence. And that's when people start getting into a lot of mental health issues because they've got nothing. They don't, you know, we're put on this planet to really have a drive and feel a purpose for something that we're doing. And a lot of the time, it's not necessarily the job they're doing. It's the way they look at it. You know, and when we go to, to a lot of companies, we work with a lot of companies. And we make them come up with a mission statement that really, that, 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 that's their mantra. That's the reason they're getting out of bed every morning early and then going to work and doing what they do. Um, and it's, it's just a case of reframing it. I mean, the majority of people, if they looked at their jobs, for instance, they could probably reframe it and understand how that job is helping people. You know, it's like someone that works in an insurance company. You know, if you're thinking, oh, I've got to go to work today, but it pays the bills. Why don't you just reframe that and say, look how many people I'm helping with their insurance and making sure that they're covered in case something goes wrong. You know, it's just a case of reframing it. You know, it's not a case of having to change your job and, and find something else and do this and the other. A lot of time, it's just a case of reframing. Absolutely. Your outlook is, is almost everything, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. so powerful. It really is. And just this next question, sort of two in one, which is, 
when you were doing all these things and even the, the self-funded operations out in Asia, you've clearly seen a lot of traumatic things in your life, a lot of traumatic experiences, and you're trained to deal with those. But when you come away from them, one, how do you sort of not become traumatised by it yourself, i.e. lying in bed at night? And, and number two, when you left the military, was there any support set up in place for, for people who've given as much service as yourself? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, look, what happens when, when we go through any kind of traumatic incident, it's a natural self-preservation system within us, a survival blueprint that will lock away that intimate trauma in the immediate moment okay and that means we can get over it and move forward very quickly now that's good in some respects but it's bad in others that you take me for instance when i was 10 years old got attacked by the chin okay for me to expect that that never had an effect on my life would be absolutely naive but i didn't know that at the time okay but what happened you know i got attacked by that chin nearly died i nearly lost my arm shortly afterwards to gangrene massively traumatic and straight away, my natural system, you know, locked away that intimate trauma. It locked away and threw away the key. Now, for me as a kid, I mean, that should have really been dealt with, with a psychologist and all that kind of thing. And, you know, should have been almost not forced, but I should have been pushed into to seeking, um, you know, some kind of professional help for that. And I didn't. And um, that's what a lot of people you know, don't understand that you can't lock it away. At some point, it's going to come out. And if you have a number of traumatic experiences, at some point, it's like a pressure cooker. It's going to, it's going to explode. If you don't release that lid or release the, the valve over a period of time, you're going to explode. It will explode and cause a massive amount of damage. And that's what really happened to me. You know, it wasn't being in the military and it, it was over... It was over all those years, you know, from a, when I look back when I was a 10 year old, I mean, it's clearly obvious that that changed the course of my life. I was absolutely crazy as a kid. Um, and then I went into the military. Then I came out of the military. Then I went over to, you know, did was in Iraq getting attacked by the militia, all kinds of stuff. Then I went to Asia. And then in 2011, when I came back from Asia, that's when it happened. And that's when I fell apart, you know, and it's really... For me, you know, my message is to everyone, don't wait for that to happen. You know, mental health and um, mindfulness is so important that even if we sit there going, oh, I'm okay, you know, especially if you've had a traumatic incident in your life or, or been, you know, and, and everyone, you don't have to go to war zones. You don't have to be in the military. The, the military don't own PTSD. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder is, it's you know, it's an event that's happened in your life. So don't think that, you know, and a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, I don't deserve to have PTSD because I've not been in the military. There's no checklist. You know what I mean, there's no checklist. But if, if you've got anything that brings down the baseline on, on your life consistently and you're not, you know, you don't, you don't embrace life and every day with a smile on your face, then you really need to do something about it. And, and really, that's why I push mindfulness, everything, keep that as a, a practice you know everyone's fixated on going to the gym but you know they do that because of the aesthetics and they want they want to look good but the thing is the mind is the most um under exercised muscle that we've got in our body but the most important and people have got to understand that you need to have some kind especially when you're getting on in life you know you get to 30 the neurons in your head start to to die but the information going in starts to increase and unless you have some kind of practice, and I practice every day, 
well, when I say every day, sometimes some days it doesn't, but you know, my 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 focus is every day to to do a practice. Um, I have to have that practice in my life because now I know the I know how bad it is when I don't do it. And and really people got to understand, you know, if you get to 35, even if it's early, whatever it is in your life, if you get to a point in your life and then all of a sudden you're sitting there going, I can't understand why I've got some kind of mental health issues. If you haven't got any kind of mindfulness practice, it's quite understandable that everyone, everyone is going to go through some kind of mental health issues at some point in their life. Ollie, one of the, um, one of the things that I think is quite interesting uh, about, about yourself and how open you've been about the, the sort of things you've, you've spoken about, about depression and suicidal thoughts, was that I would imagine for someone like yourself with, with kind of your public perception and your background as a, as a, as a hard man and, and that sort of thing, was that process particularly difficult for you or were people particularly surprised by the things that you've kind of been so open about? Yeah, I did, first of all, let me, sorry, I didn't really uh, answer the question. I just realized I didn't ask, answer the question from before, and that was the, the help. When, when I left the military, there wasn't a lot of help. Um, but really, that, I'm not blaming anyone for that. I think even if there was help, I would, I would have done everything I could to get out of having to do it. You know, because at that time, you know, you just think you, at that time when I left, I just thought I was invincible and I didn't need that kind of stuff anyway. So I don't blame anyone for it, but there wasn't really processes in play for place for for people to have some kind of decompression um on that next question that's a really good question because i think it's so important that you know my my uh, presence on social media my presence in the public eye is about not faking perfection and the more i can help people understand that you know a lot of a lot of my life up until i was probably 43 uh, until i really sort of started making those changes was all about building the perception of someone that i wasn't you know, everyone is guilty of doing it. They are so invested in building this perception of, of someone that is not really them, but it looks good from the outside looking in. And we put so much time and effort into building this perception of this perfection that we really, our real emotional selves become a byproduct of that. And that, you know, we, we really start to um, suffer with that. You know, and that person, you know, the real you is the one that, you know, is depressed, is crying in the corner or whatever it is, or, you know, drinking too much, et cetera, et cetera. And people have got to get away. They've got to stop thinking that they're, they're they've got to be stopped being so self-critical. They've got to stop doing things because it pleases other people. And they've really got to be selfish and invest in themselves. Um, people are chasing the vision of something that really doesn't create a feeling of happiness. And that's important for me. You know, a lot, we, we are so fixated on the material world. We're so fixated on how things look and we really should be striving for how things feel. It's like, for me, it's like fitness and everything. You know, I don't work out to, to look good. I work out to feel good and looking good is a byproduct of that isn't the sole drive you know and really you know they've got a lot of people that they're just doing things so that from the outside you know they're pleasing everyone else their whole focus in life is to make sure everyone thinks they are this image of perfection and it's such a bad place to be and for me it was so important for me to open up and be totally honest uh, because if i can you know if i can do it you know coming from my background there's so many people out there that there's so much going on behind that smile and it's not serving them 
any purpose whatsoever and you can't help you can't you know there's a reason and it's a bit cliche but you know some people might not have heard it there's a reason why you're on an aircraft and there's a reason why they say you know in an emergency make sure you put your gas mask on before you help anyone else and that is because you've got to make sure your foundation is absolutely solid because you can't help anyone else until it is and people have got to understand that you know a lot of people that are trying to help others you know and they're coming from an extremely broken place you can't be support you can't be supportive you can't give that you can't put that hand out unless you are you come from a root structure that is absolutely solid and a foundation that can can, can be there to help other people so really yeah it was it was it was hard for me to, to to make that transition but once i did make that transition you know and started basically i don't do anything now to impress anyone else you know i just i am me and if people like it then that's great but if they don't like it then that's not my issue um but i do everything basically for my purpose you know i'm i'm, I'm obviously there to to be there for my partner and everything else but really i've got to make sure the first person the most important project is me and then everyone else that is around me that i'm uh, you know that i love and people that love me they will benefit from that I presume, presume sort of showing weakness, especially sort of in a combat situation, is is almost trained out of you to a degree. So how, when you admit to something like going through suicidal thoughts or having depression, it's almost like you've been trained not to show weakness. So how how, how did you end up coming forward and, and showing that emotion? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, that, that's not something I did, you know. And, I, I, you know, I, I would recommend absolutely recommend that people do talk about that you know i was i was i was your stereotypical person that you know I, I, going from the military first of all i mean you know that the, the culture i was i was sort of born into uh, not born into but the culture i was i was um um the culture i was in you know being in the special forces was very much you know if you did show weakness it was or if you did show uh, emotion it was it was considered weakness and before you know it'd be shut up and have a beer and you know get over it and you know it, 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 it just wasn't the environment to be um showing that kind of it just wasn't accepted now i'm not sure how that's changed these days I, i'm not sure what processes are in play but certainly back then it's just not something that happened um which is was was not a great thing but but again you know i just don't understand really you know i i know that person i was back then in in the special forces and i wouldn't have wanted to talk about it anyway it's just the way you know i was i was i was trained i suppose and then that really went into you know when i left it was suicidal thoughts you know years later as a civilian and you know it you know that that same ethos haunted me at that point as well you know i just there's no way i would have told anyone through that time that i was suffering with mental health issues you know i was i was i was the person that put on a smile everyone just thought i was happy ollie and all this that and the other no one had any idea of what was going on behind the smile um and that's something that you know i would definitely recommend people make sure that if if you are even having thoughts i mean i, I listen i don't even know if i'd have gone through with that but the fact that you're having suicidal thoughts you've gone far enough. You need to talk to someone about it because if you can't bottle that stuff up, you cannot, absolutely not. So, and it was really, I, I, I didn't talk to anyone about it. It was only when I started putting that stuff into my books 
that you know I, I I opened up about that stuff. But you know, I, I I'm such an ambassador of of of, of uh, anyone that's going through that. I'm a real ambassador mm -hmm. of, of of opening up and and talking about your emotions because you know you're just going to cause you know the last thing you want to do is is obviously end your life that's the worst place you want to be going but you know just putting yourself through that trauma the only way you can resolve it is by talking to people i was actually going to ask you if you you sought any professional help but i think you just answered that then but it sounds like writing but i did mate i did i, I actually yeah, Content. sorry, sorry to interrupt that. But I actually, at one point, I did, and I think it really helped me. Um, I went to see a spiritual psychologist in um, when I was living in Australia, and that really massively helped me. Massively helped me. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I was at that stage where I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to go to a doctor um, because I didn't want them to, you know, I find that doctors are quite happy to slide prescriptions across the counter. Uh, and I've had friends as well that have died, you know, while taking medication that have been that's been prescribed by doctors uh, for depression. Uh, so I went to see a spiritual, spiritual psychologist, and I started getting into meditation and all kinds of stuff as part of those sessions. And although at the time I was thinking, Jesus, if my mate saw me now, I'd be for <laughs> it. You know, I was I was absolutely prepared to do anything, and. You know, you know, one thing when you get into that, because honestly, meditation for me is a, was a game changer. And, you know, I had, you know, I was there, you know, I was, I was so self-critical about it at the start. And, you know, we all think we've got this thousand person audience watching us and critiquing us and laughing at us. And I just understood that, you know, I was prepared to be non-judgmental and just do it for a certain period of time, whether that was 30 days or whatever, and see what happened. And I did. I did that. And it was, it changed my life, absolutely changed my life. And that's something, I mean, it's this morning when I got up, it's one of the first things I do every day. Um, and I sit there for half an hour and, and meditate. And that for me is an absolute game changer. And I think it's only right that we do quickly just touch on the book. So it's a lot of these tips and stuff and experiences, I presume they're mentioned in the books you've released. Yeah, no, I, my first book, Great Point, was, um, was really laying the sort of foundation, who I am, where I've come from, and the story of my life, um, although there are some good tips in there. Um, and the second book, Battle Ready, is, is that absolute process. When I came back in 2014, 15, I locked myself away in isolation, no distractions, and I put a process into play of meditation, visualization, um, listening to positive podcasts, turning off the TV, no, 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 uh, no radio, no nothing. And I've, that book is basically those processes listed. And I get in, in the book battle ready, I get people to go through the very same process that I did back in 2014, 15. And I do to this day. And that is setting goals, building positive affirmations, um, really, uh, you know, engaging in exercise, engaging in, in, in good nutrition, and um yeah it's listed everything is listed in that book and it, it's a really it's a call to action that book is it's not just to sit back and have a cup of tea and read and all that was interesting it's a call to action that's fantastic what we'll do is um after we've finished recording we'll order a copy and if we get you to sign one mate we'll um we'll raffle one off for, for our listeners um yeah we'll, we'll come back to us yeah come back to us direct because we've got like signed copies in the office so Fantastic. And just just on sort of war in general and, and the mil military, do you think we almost yeah, glorify yeah. it in a dangerous way at all? 
Yeah, listen, I, I think we do. And, uh, and again, I, you know, I, I've, I've got no belief in war um, these days. I, I think, you know, I look at this world now that we live in and every war, every conflict, everything that I've been involved in in, in my time and, and, and every war and every conflict in my life on this, this or in my time on this planet is all focused on one thing and that is greed and i think that is the biggest disease on this planet so really for me um i don't glorify war i don't think it's i think it's a horrendous um a horrendous thing um and um you know i, I just think yeah it is glorified far too much through hollywood movies which is that's not reality you know what i mean that's not reality i wouldn't i have no no desire to be in the war zone whatsoever so it is not a nice place to be, believe me. I spent six years, you know, in, in Iraq as a contractor, consistently being at, at war every day. And it's, you know, when you see the destruction, you see the, the you know, families torn apart, people killed. It is, it is a very brutal play. I don't believe it's, you know, it's, an, it's not a natural thing for humanity. Some people have got this mindset that, you know, we are warriors and we must fight and we must kill and take land. I don't believe in that whatsoever. And you sort of post being in the military, we, we all know that show you on SS Who Dares Wins, um, very popular. A lot of sort of contestants are challenged on the issues um, within the process. And often it's mental health related. Um, how, when you got into that show, sort of that journey ended up being, I think it was seven series in the end, was it hugely successful? How did that come about and, and how was your experience on that show? Yeah, I mean, that came about, you know, I, I, I keep talking about this time when I came back in 2014, 15, and that was a, for the sole purpose for me. I came back and I said, right, I'm going to start my own business. It's called Breakpoint. It's going to help other people. I'm going to basically use my experience of special forces um, uh, operations and special forces selection to, um, you know, I'll put, I'll put corporates through um, a mock selection process. I'll put the public through a similar process. I'll, I'll get lads involved that are suffering with PTSD. That was the dream. That was the vision. And then I sat in the house for two months and, you know, I had no money, hardly any money left. I was putting all the money into websites, this, that, and the other. And I visualized every day about creating this, this company and this, uh, and, and, and this dream. And, you know, at the end of that two months, I was like, you know, thinking, God, does this visualization and all this goal setting and all this stuff really work? It's, you know, I was like, just, just give me a sign that this stuff works because I'd invested so much in it and I was just waiting for something to happen and nothing was happening. And then all of a sudden Foxy gave me a call one day and he's like, Hey mate, he says, you know, that idea we've got for Breakpoint." He says, um, do you, um, would you consider doing that on TV? And I'm, I, I thought, is this, is Foxy in the pub? And, um, <laughs> And I was like, mate, where are you? Can I, I'll come and have a pipe with you. And um, anyway, he says, no, he says, I'm, I'm sat with a production company now who, who want to do a show very similar to what we're talking about. And he says, would you be interested? And I said, yeah. And, and basically that was the start. You know, that was my introduction to the production company. And then that was the start, you know, and that for me, I was like, oh my God, it was like a, it was, it was like a gift from the gods. You know, at the point when I was starting to doubt myself, I got rewarded with this almost like a gift from the gods. And it was like, that was the perfect platform for me to launch my business, launch everything. And at that time as well, it was like, it wasn't, you know, for me, the TV stuff was just a, 
a means of exposure always has been and and that's what I'm, I'm really humble for for what it's done for me um but i had no idea I've, I've always i've always treated every show like it's been the last one the first one i just thought it'd be a one-off it'll be great and that'll be it you know so i you know i put so much energy into it for crazy creating stuff you know the company around it and then it it went on and on and on and it was just so massively popular. And the reason it was popular, which I didn't understand from, from at the start, you know, cause it was hard to understand my purpose. What was my purpose? My purpose was to, to bring exposure to my business. You know, that's why I'm doing it. But very quickly after the first, after seeing the first show and understanding how powerful that show was because it delves into human psychology. It's not just about, it wasn't just, it wasn't about the military as far as I was concerned. It's about human psychology. And that's why it was so popular and why it resonated so well with everyone and, and the audience that watches. So, you know, every contestant, you know, there's a contestant on there that a, a good majority of the audience watching can relate to, you know, a similar kind of situation. And, and everyone, everyone was compelled to, to watch it. It's been brilliant. I've enjoyed it. Um, and now I'm no, I'm no longer part of the UK one, which I'm more than happy with because really it was, it was time for me to, to really focus on my business and that is my that is my ultimate goal you know it's, it's not to be a celebrity it's i still struggle with that it's not to be but it, it is to to build my business and that is is the one thing i'm putting every every ounce of energy into now we're still i'm still doing the uh we got signed to do the sas australia show which we doing we've just been reaching for a second series next year um and that's absolutely phenomenal being part of that team you know it's the original team from from the uk uh, and that for me is is quite enough at the moment you know my businesses and um and one show a year that's plenty what i really loved about the show is often with with these type of shows and especially when you sort of get into the realms of celebrities as well is people's sort of highlight of the shows is when celebrities fall out or when they argue and and, and it, it's almost a little bit sad that we take enjoyment in that but in ss who days wins the the relationships and the bonds that are built and the camaraderie it sort of almost gives you an insight to that that brotherhood that you must have when you're in the military and how close those bonds are and how important they are as well but i mean we're social creatures at the end of the day and it's important to have people in your life who you think they would literally have like take maybe taking a bullet for me is a bit dramatic for, from the show's point of view but would have you back in any scenario and was that quite almost being on the other side of it and sort of watching that outside in as opposed to being in the military what was that like for you to experience to see these people who'd never met before sort of build that camaraderie no, yeah no I, and it's, it's just such an amazing process to watch um, because everyone that comes on that show, especially, especially the celebrities, you know, they've got no military experience and they come on the show. Everyone comes on the show, regardless of whether it's the military or the non, uh, sorry, celebrity or the non-celebrity version. And they really come on as individuals. They want to smash everyone else. They want to be the, the alpha male or the, you know, they want to be the victor. They want to win. Um, and very quickly they come to that show. They're in a massive state of shock from day one. You know, it's like no other reality TV show. There's no one shouting cut and a cup of tea being brought over and mic changes and all that. It's totally immersed. Um, so really, it's amazing seeing that process. You know, in the first 24 hours, you see a load of individuals and you can, see, you can almost see it happening. You can almost see the energy connecting when people understand that the only way they're going to get through it is by working together. So the people that they came along with to start competing with 
end up being their best allies. And that is so, so, so very, yeah, it's a mirror image to what it was like in the military. You know, and in the military, you know, you had that ethos, you had that bond, which was amazing, and I've never felt anything like it. But that doesn't mean you were like best mates outside of work. Do you know, if, they, if this makes any sense, does that make sense? It means basically that, you know, that there was people in the, in the special forces that outside of work, we, we'd never socialize with them. But when it came to doing the job, the bond was unbelievable and you'd have each other's back, you know, through thick and thin like you wouldn't believe. Uh, and, and you see that very same thing happening on, sh on the show, you know, people that really, are, you know, they start off having a, a very low regard for each other. Then all of a sudden, it doesn't happen with everyone, but you do see it in some instances before you know it, that whole, because people are put into situations where their ego is being pushed to one side, they're in a state of vulnerability and then they're given a joint task to do. And it's just human nature that these people join together. They, their, their differences are irrelevant. And, and all of a sudden there's a bond being created that, you know, in a comfort zone just would not happen. And it's an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, it's, it's, you, you're watching them grow respect for each other, aren't you? Because, I mean, we all do. We all judge people. We all like to think we don't. Some do it more than others. But mm. it's, some people don't actually give somebody respect until they see what they've been through. And it's quite sad that that happens. But when you do watch it happen, it, it's almost emotional to see that happen, if that makes sense. And for men as well, controlling and understanding their own anger and aggression is something that's almost been a long-standing issue and because discipline is such a big part of the show and, and part of the military how important do you see discipline and being able to control someone's maybe anger and, and, and aggression in other aspects of their life yeah well i mean people's people uh, you know people's lives have been ruined through um you know not being able to control that aggression um but i mean for me, you know, I've been in the special forces and, you know, I've, I've worked with some of the hardest men on earth and to see them in some situations and scenarios where, you know, they've been pushed and pushed by someone who's, who they probably just absolutely kill in a heartbeat. And to see those people just absolutely pull back and be able to control their aggression and, and walk away from it, it's, it's phenomenal. And I just think that, you know, it's, I think, you know, people lack, a lot of people lack that discipline. They don't understand that, um, you know, those actions can have some extremely severe consequences. And it's such a, I mean, we see a lot of people on the show, they just haven't got any discipline. They can't control their aggression. And, and, and that's something that, you know, for anyone to evolve in life, for anyone to, to, to really, um, you know, make something of themselves, they have to be able to control their aggression. And that all comes down to discipline. It's, it's, you know, you have to have that sense of discipline with everything you do. And you also have to be able to, you know, controlling your emotions, I mentioned this before, is about being an emotional observer. You know, it's about understanding your emotions, your aggression, your fear, everything. And it's being able to understand when that's happening. It's, it's like, you know, I, I'm not egoless. I've got no, I've not got an ego. I know exactly when it's coming into play. You know, I know when fear is coming into play. I know when aggression's coming into play and I can stop it in its tracks because I'm observing it and I'm aware of it. But when you haven't got, when you're not in control of it, it it's contagious. It, it dominates you and you do things that are absolutely have extreme consequences. And unfortunately, a lot of people just never learn. They just don't learn.
Yeah, yeah, very true, Ollie. And and lastly, just before we, we, we finish on the quick fire, you've spoken tonight about breakpoints. For for anybody who's listening, I'm sure that they're gonna to want to check that out and there might be some people whose companies may benefit from that. What what are the details? Where can they find you and, and learn more? Um, well, the best place to go for everything I do really is is my personal website, which which will redirect you to all my projects, um, and I've got a number of them, so my books and everything, and that is ollieollerton.co.uk, um, and then they'll see, you know, there's a description about Breakpoint on there, there's a description about Battle Ready, which is the fitness, fitness app that me and Foxy have got, there's my books and all the other projects and everything I'm involved with, so that's, a, that's the best source of uh, information. Fantastic. Still got and still got Ryan. Hope you enjoyed that interview with with Ollie there. As we mentioned at the at the very top, a lot of very interesting themes. And as Ryan said, when we were, you know, when we were asked if we wanted to to interview Ollie, we were very delighted to do so for the for a lot of the reasons and a lot of the stuff that came up in the interview. So and I thought there was kind of like a practical thing that Ollie was talking about, which Ryan you actually mentioned. I can't remember if it was on the last episode or if we spoke about it off off mic. Um, where we were talking about getting out of bed, difficulty getting out of bed in the morning and getting motivated for the day. And I think possibly over the last 12 months, as much as anything else, has probably been a difficult thing for people to get up and get get at it. And, and it, it can sort of have a big impact on the rest of your rest of your day. I've certainly found it difficult in the last couple of weeks. And I don't know why, but just found it quite difficult getting out of bed in the morning. Um, and it's, prob- it's probably them tennis strellas sat behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably yeah, twelve. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's. Ollie said something that I thought was quite, probably quite useful and quite an easy thing that people can do was telling himself something positive to start the day off, start it off on on the right foot. And I think with a lot of these things, you you have to almost force yourself to do it to start with and then it can become part of your your natural routine um so i thought practically that was something good you know as you're getting up saying yeah. you know i'm looking for you know i'm glad to have a job to get up to I'm, I'm looking forward to get up and go and do this and and turn something that may feel like a negative oh, i've got to get up and go to work today into maybe something more of a of a positive and go at it with a with a better better sort of a uh, frame of mind right from the outset so i thought that was something that was really interesting something else that was that was that i that i certainly picked up on from from listening to him was getting a better understanding of yourself, getting a better understanding of how your mind works and your body works. And Ryan, that's something you're very, uh, you're very into learning about how the body works and, and maybe some of the things that come from our evolutionary status as, as humans. Yeah. Nicely put by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we don't accept it in other walks of life, do we? So, but we seem to accept it within ourselves. So, if your computer's not working, which we were talking about before, funnily enough, with the microphone, how angry you can feel in those moments, because it should be working. This is ridiculous, and we get that angry with technology. And when it comes to ourselves and we feel a little bit low, and we don't understand why, because it's not always directly linked to one certain moment, kind of accept it as, oh, it's just happened, I'm just down. You go, well, no, let's, let's understand it, because part of your recovery will be understanding it. You can't solve something you don't understand unless it's by fluke, which is going to be very rare. So... I think it is important because, and I've said this before, it gives people hope that they don't always have to feel that way once you start breaking down that process of why it's happening. Okay, what's that related to? How can I go about recovering from that? I think it's massively important for anyone listening to go through that that almost ritual of asking yourself the question and trying to break it down into, into chunks you can digest and that become a little bit more manageable. 
and figuring out um trigger points as well isn't it for yourself one of the things that trigger those feelings um and then trying to kind of either reduce the interactions with those possible trigger points or accepting that when they happen how are you going to tackle them when they come up and and often it can just be a, a little thing like trial and error so if you look at him saying before about getting out of bed and I tell myself this in the morning. Now, that's where the sort of mentality argument comes in that some people say, I don't have that in me to, to get up and do those things. I struggle. It's easier for some people to do that. And that that is true. It, it will be easier for other people. And he's probably got a very disciplined mindset from his days in the military. But I suppose the advice there would be, well, give it a go one morning and see how it feels. And if it feels like it benefited you in, in any way, then rather than just someone telling you it works, you at least you've got some experience there of it having a positive effect. Yeah. If it didn't work, maybe try it again in a week's time or try something else, do something else that might be wake up an hour earlier. I think at the moment you're seeing a lot of people's attitude change because it's changing seasons and it's lighter mornings and lighter evenings. And Some people naturally will probably have a bit of a dip in the winter. So what, what can you do in the winter? Can you maybe offset some of that? some of that uh, feeling of feeling down to, to the season and, and just understanding it a little bit more is it, it can be a, a phys- an understanding doesn't always have to be a, an overly scientific approach and a breakdown and you don't have to be overly qualified to, to to understand it all the time it's more layman terms what works for you as an individual is what take, we mean by understanding taking control isn't it i think yeah. one of the things that ollie was talking about was like not letting things happen to you i think it's 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 you know, it's easier said than done, but a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast with regards to, to mental health and to, to well-being and, and, and various other different things, a lot of it's about you, you, the only person who can change these things is you. You're, you know, ultimately, if you want to improve, you know, if, you, if you're an addict, for example, and you want to recover from your addiction, no one else can do it for you. You're going to have to do that. And I think Ollie was very big on finding the strength within you looking for the answers within you and learning about how you can sort of fix those things or at least have an impact on those things and he's he, he, i thought it was interesting we, we kind of touched on it with the topic um where ollie was talking about the the sort of the phrase it's okay not to be okay and we've seen that as like a big kind of um a big thing on, online particularly on twitter and on other social media platforms as a way of telling people that it's okay if you've got some issues it's okay if you've got some problems or it's okay if you're not feeling okay and to talk about that and i think that's been a really powerful tool for people and uh, in, in being able to open up and feel more comfortable about it but it was interesting to me that it's the second person we've had very recently who's had a slight uncomfortableness perhaps with that phrase being used as, as the mantra really i think lance was the other person who who slightly disagreed with it and and Ant, I know it's 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 very difficult for us to sort of, you know, dictate to people or say to people how they should or shouldn't act. And I think it's very individual for people. But I thought there was certainly something in what Ollie was saying about not just accepting that you feel shit or not just accepting that you feel depressed or that you've got anxiety or whatever it might be, that you you can do something to affect it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd, to be honest, I think the, the, the way I view that, it's not okay to be okay phrase is it's kind of a starting point uh-huh. uh, you need to go on and, and kick on now and, and maybe change the change the conversation around it but yeah it's absolutely a starting point for me um i don't think it's a i think that you you can just 
you can f- fall into a little bit of a danger of hiding behind it and going, oh, well, it's just, it's just me. It's just me. You know, I'm allowed to be this way, which is fine. Yeah, I think you are. But yeah, you're right. You need to you need to affect that as well. You need to affect that change. And I think that's a positive mindset, isn't it, uh, that Ollie had. Um, we, we see it a lot. And I've, I've probably been banging on to you two about it and other people. You get it with, like, luck as well, don't you? You know, bad luck and good luck. And, you know, some people are just lucky. Well, I think there's a lot to be said that you get a, you know, if you're thinking in a, in a bad mindset, you know, you're not going to get the best out of yourself. And you're not going to yep. get those moments that you consider lucky or unlucky might happen. And I know that's not really applicable to every situation, but it's certainly a, a mindset. There's been a few, a few like kind of studies into it. Obviously it's, it's still very. Like a confirmation um, bias, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking in a bad, in a bad way, it can't help. Yeah, and if you think it's because Ollie said it himself, didn't he? It's like people's language. And Ryan, you've got you've got a friend, and we you know, obviously don't have to, to name him, but I think that's who you were talking about in the in the interview itself. You know, where people might say, "I knew that was going to happen," or "Of course mm-hmm. that's happening to me." And when you talk about luck, ants, I think that's very much it, isn't it? It's like, "Oh, of course that happened to me. That always happens to me." And and I think it it Ollie makes a really good point about changing your negative language and about maybe changing it to something, you know, just accepting that sometimes bad things are going to happen. But it's a natural thing you were saying as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's like a defense mechanism. That's the understanding part, isn't it? Which which is what we're kind of harping on about. I mean, it becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy when you, when you say something over and over again, to a degree. And I think always right in what he's saying, whereby, if it, I mean, it goes back to almost that cliche saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get, which is a bit different, but it's kind of similar in the sense of if you're working on things to improve, the likelihood is your outlook will be completely different. Um, and if you're sort of sitting there in a sort of self-pity and you're down in the dumps, it's hard for anything to come along and change that because you're kind of setting that sort of cycle that you can't get out of, you can't break out of. So I think what I always kind of saying there is, well, Nothing's going to change unless you change. Yeah, um, you can't expect you can't expect <clears throat> to get a different result if yeah. you keep doing the same thing over and over yeah. again, isn't it? And I think, I mean, for example, I've not been on social media now since just before Christmas, and I think I've I've intermittently come to realise that my use of social media can often become quite unhealthy because I become very obsessive over the things that I post on there and but more so about what people react to it and about what reflection that has over who I am and what people think of me. So I just have taken myself off social media for the last couple of months and it's, 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 it's been good. And I think it's about learning what are those things that, you know, breaking them down as, as you've both said into their sort of smaller parts, what are these things and why do they make me feel that way? And can I do something differently about it? Mm, and was the, sorry, go on, Ant. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it's, it's quite similar to like football. I've got it on the notes here. It's quite similar to footballers as well, isn't it? Mm. You know, when they wallow in self pity after retiring and, and it can get on top of them and then they all of a sudden become like kind of inspired to go and do something that, that they really like. And often it's it's managing or coaching or, or something. But we've seen with, with others with like Robbie Simpson, it's actually, actually, I want to be that one that helps someone. Yeah. So that's kind of that was kind of interesting, you know. They were very, very similar things. I've retired. Who am I now? Like, yeah, I, I it's an identity thing, isn't it? Yeah. So that was that was really interesting. 
Yeah, I thought so as well. And I thought what's what's so interesting about that is the comparison. I mean, we we asked we we wanted to speak to Ollie about it, but he he kind of prompted it as a conversation he had with with Fox News and other another guys that's on the on the show with him about when you leave the special forces or probably when you leave the armed forces in in any guys very similar to retiring from football really is that you you're going from a really specialist elite sort of very unique environment back into the wider world which can be very difficult and as you say and it's it's about taking control of whether you know are you going to allow that situation to happen to you or are you going to use that as an opportunity and we've seen a number of, of, of footballers that have had you know that we've had on the podcast that have said I just I wasn't sure what to do or I didn't know where to turn and, and then it takes them a while to get used to it and goes back to those conversations about it's 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 allowing uh, people and particularly men which is the, the context that we're talking in the space to maybe say Jesus I'm a little bit you know I'm struggling a little bit without those things in place and not that being a problem for anybody but just um, saying that is I'm a, I'm a struggling with this and let's find a solution to it Ryan you look like you want to you want to add something there mate yeah, and it was it was sorry to go back a little bit on the it's okay to not be okay stuff really. I feel like it doesn't have to be you agree with the statements or don't. I think they both have the place. I think the first place is allowing people to open up so to come out and say I feel comfortable saying I'm not okay. And the sort of second phase of that is then saying, Well the fact you're not okay, that isn't okay. Now we need to deal with it. Yeah. And it's not a case of it's a it's a correct statement or it's not. I think they can actually Live coexist. If that it's... makes sense, yeah, they coexist together. If, and just moving then on to what you were saying there about like finding your purpose. Um, again, a lot of people struggle, don't they, to find something passionate about or a hobby. And again, it can sometimes just be getting yourself involved in like some volunteering or helping out with something else, something you never really thought you'd have an interest in that just gives you that sense of yeah, help, I think. A lot of people have come on the show and they've got the most enjoyment out of helping others. Yeah. Even when they've been so. in a place that required help themselves, their self-help was actually helping others. Yeah. You can't be selfish when you help other people. That feel, yeah. It feels nice to help other people. Yeah, and that, that's fine, isn't it? That. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Absolutely 100%. Chaps, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap us up there. I think that's a nice place for us to, to finish. Can I just... Can I just give you an update on the shovel fiasco? Oh, is, there a, is there a shovel update? Is there? <laughs> <laughs> go on. So I've, go got, on. I've, got the, I've got the text messages between the two. <laughs> so my dad texted him saying, do you want anything from B&Q this morning? And my brother said, an outside shovel. And then my dad's questioned this and said, shovel, not spade. And then the, the answer is to brush stuff up with. And then my dad's just replied, shovel. <laughs> <laughs> I have absolutely no idea how they've come to the, any of those conclusions between them. I don't I know what's happened there. I'm so confused. I know. I it's don't get why you said brilliant. outside shovel. I, I don't know. Is there an inside shovel? I no. think it's one of them where you couldn't think of the word, so he's just gone with the word he knows. But then, obviously, your dad's just assumed he means a spade and just come back with a massive spade. I mean, that is... That is an extraordinary insight into the inner workings of your family, Ant. It's and I amazing, think, isn't it? I mean, it does certainly doesn't surprise me having known both you and your Rob, and also Neil for many, many a year. But I'm sure to the listener, it's 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 an eye opener, if anything else. Oh. 
<laughs> I don't even know how to explain it. So I don't think you need to, mate. I think yeah. we I think we just need to wrap up at that point. Yeah. Before we do, actually, one thing that we should mention, uh, Ollie has very generously agreed to uh, give us a signed copy of uh, his most recent book that we can use as a giveaway on Twitter. Um, so we'll be posting some details about that at some point following the episode so keep an eye out for that it'll be a, a retweet and follow situation as we've done before but yeah ollie has very generously agreed to do that for us so that's absolutely fantastic so keep an eye out for that and if you do want to get involved in that you want to have a look at our twitter we are on uh at marking underscore man and you can use the hashtag where's the talking lads so we're now going to leave you with ollie's quick fire and uh, we'll see you next time we'll be back on monday with yet another interview uh this time with paul mcveigh former norwich midfielder paul mcveigh so that's something to look forward to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time have you ever seen foxy and frank lampard in the same room <laughs> no <laughs> he's a spit isn't he he's the absolute spit <laughs> <laughs> Mary, I've never looked at that, but now I am. <laughs> you won't be able to lock it in the same. <laughs> no, exactly, mate. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna use that. Would you, would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? One horse-sized duck. Wow, Take, taking on the the big hit today. I just stamp on a hundred duck-sized horses. I think. <laughs> I feel like mate, it, jump, it's, it's cruel. I just, I'll just run out of there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we used to, we when we first started doing these, we we used to ask people if they um, if they're eating a the yogurt, would they lick the yogurt lid? And everyone seemed to say yes. Um, but the sticking points seemed to come when people were deciding who they would lick it in front of. So if you were on a, an SAS mission and you wanted to have a little yogurt with your lunch, would you have licked the yogurt lid in front of your your SAS pals? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. You've got to go straight forward, haven't you? Own that yogurt lid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the next one, Ollie, I've gonna, I'm going to share my screen. Um, mm. Although, given the way I've worked with the technology tonight, who knows what might happen. Um, right. So, one of the, the other lads who does the uh, podcast with us. Can you see my screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the other lad who does the podcast with us, which is uh, Ant on the right, we think he looks the spit of Tony Bellew, who obviously you had on the Celebrity SAS. What are your uh, What are your thoughts? Mate, he is the spit. But don't he tell is, Tony he? Bellew said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's, that's gold. It is, isn't it? Look at that. He gets uh, he gets sticks sometimes in the pub for. Uh, He'll just walk in and someone will go, oh, fuck, fuck off, Bellew, as soon as he goes in the book. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just another, it's a life support system for a beard. <laughs> <laughs> Same as Ant. 